Hey everybody, it's Monday. Welcome to another episode of this Poor Pastors Podcast. What you doing here? Don't you have practice? Not anymore, I quit. Oh. Well, since when are you the quitting kind? I want to do something big and something important. I'm not like you. I'm nothing. Just let me be nothing. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end? I believe God made me for a purpose. If you commit yourself to the love of Christ, then that is how you run a straight race. Run in God's name and let the world stand back in wonder. Welcome. Was it as easy as it looked? No, sir. No, no, sir, it wasn't. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is Monday again, and it is time for another episode. I want to warn you right off at the start, um, this is going to be a little bit longer. And I thought about making it into two episodes, but I'm just going to make it one. And if you have to stop partway through uh, and come back and listen again later, that's fine. But I'm just going to put it all out there in one episode and then give people a chance to give me some feedback. And then maybe we'll do a follow up. Not entirely sure. But as you saw in the title of this episode, I'm going to give you my thoughts on Psalm chapter 12, specifically as it relates to the use of verse 6 and 7. It should be an interesting time, and I'm pretty serious about it. I hope you'll stick with me as we go through Psalm chapter 12, the entire thing, right here on this episode. So in this podcast, I don't usually do Bible teaching. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, the basic purpose for this podcast is to challenge and encourage, hopefully more encourage than challenge, other pastors, specifically pastors of small churches like mine, men who feel like we are um, sometimes forgotten and alone, and I just want to be an encouragement. I don't know how well I do at that, but it is my heart, and uh, sometimes I get done recording an episode and I'm just like, ooh, not sure that was the one. I feel that way about this episode as well. The uh, The other reason I don't tend to do a lot of Bible teaching is because there's nothing more nerve-wracking for a pastor than to stand up in front of other pastors and teach the Bible. Not only because, unless you're in an echo chamber, everybody has a different uh, idea about certain passages, but because it's the best way to get yourself into trouble with your friends, is to approach a passage of Scripture differently than they might approach it. And so um, I'm a little bit hesitant, I have a little bit of uh, nerves going into this, but I have everything written out so that I'm going to say exactly what I want to say. I was planning on talking about this topic anyway, and then recently there have been several examples of the use of this psalm, and I just thought, I just want to put something out there and maybe encourage those who have heard this psalm and are using this psalm in this particular way to maybe think about it a little bit differently. I don't know. But for as long as I can remember, I have been hearing 
well, I, let me back that up. For as long as I can remember, at least as far back as Bible college, but even before that it was referenced, I've been hearing Psalm 12 used as a proof text for the King James Bible being the perfect and preserved Word of God. Now, if you're confused about how that conclusion was reached, you're not alone. But if you're nodding your head because you were taught the same thing, and maybe still believe it, I hope you'll hear me out. In the past, both in writing and in the podcast, I have addressed uh, the issue of what I sometimes call candy counter theology. Uh, Just going up to a candy counter and picking a verse out here or a verse out there, the ones we like, ignoring the rest. I'm convinced that a great deal of harm has been done by lifting pithy-sounding verses out of their surrounding ecosystem, their context, and using them as a proof text for some area of the Christian faith or practice. Now, in the circles that I am familiar with, the examples of this are almost too numerous to list, and that is not hyperbole. But let me give you just a few. Examples like using Jude 22 to preach on the importance of having compassion as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Using Jeremiah 29.11 to assure people that God has a plan for you, and it's a good one, even if you don't know what it is. Uh, Using 2 Chronicles 7.14 to preach a sermon on national revival, if we could just get enough Christians praying for America using Isaiah 55.8 to assert that we should never expect to understand God. After all, His ways are so much higher than our ways. Those are just four examples, and there are many more. Now, maybe you're thinking, I would use all of those verses to teach that. Okay, but none of those verses mean that. At least that's my opinion, and that's the thing, right? I'm just telling you that It's a problem the way I see it, and that's why I'm addressing it. Honestly, sometimes it gets disheartening, though, because it seems like the more I try to teach the Bible, I keep running up against these bumper sticker slogans that are already ingrained in the hearts and minds of believers. So when you try to talk about it, people get defensive because they feel like you're taking something precious away from them, and I'm not trying to do that. I am trying to help people know what the Bible actually says, because what it actually says and means is so much better. Actually, whether it's better or not, we still need to know the truth. And that's the rub. Because if what you say a text means isn't better than what people have come to believe it means, then many times they won't listen. You might as well just be spitting in the wind for all the good you do. Now, what does that have to do with Psalm chapter 12? Well, it's exactly the same kind of situation. A segment of of the Christian community has lifted verse 6 and 7 out of their surroundings and imposed upon them a meaning that cannot be derived from the text, but has to be brought to the text. In other words, you have to be of this opinion already and then Uh, superimpose it upon Psalm chapter 12. But when we do it, when we do that, it robs the text, the chapter, of its actual meaning and actually takes something from us that we should have in favor of something that was not the intent of the author to begin with. 
a lot of other people, including pastors and evangelists, who were trained in the institutions who hold that view of Psalm 12, many of them simply parrot the meaning of those verses as they've been taught. They don't question the interpretation, because here's the deal. When you question the interpretation, you open yourself up to charges that you don't actually believe the underlying ideology that makes that interpretation necessary. So to question the interpretation is to question the position, whether or not the position has anything to do with the interpretation. Now, of course, what I'm about to go through with you in Psalm chapter 12 is my opinion and my understanding of Psalm 12, and I may be mistaken. I recognize that. But I'm just going to give you my understanding of how the verse is used by the King James-only crowd, and then what I think is a better, more biblical way to understand it. I don't want you to sit here and and try to figure out whether I'm King James only or not, because I don't even think that's the issue at, at, at the stake with Psalm chapter 12. I don't want to get distracted in that discussion, and I think you'll understand why when we get to the end. But you can decide yourself whether one or neither of the views is the correct one when I'm done. Now, Within the King James-only community, I heard a pastor once say that Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7, is the linchpin of the King James-only crowd movement. He said, if we don't have Psalm 12, 6 and 7, we don't have anything. That's interesting. I was first introduced to this verse or verses as a proof text in Bible college. My professor was teaching on the preservation of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, this was a fundamental Baptist college, and the position from the start was that the King James Bible was the perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God for the English-speaking people. I knew this going into this college, all right? So it's not like they were being sneaky, but, but again, this was the starting position. This was the axiom that they were beginning from. And as a proof of this view, or for proof of this view, the professor cited Psalm 12, 6, and 7, which reads as follows. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I'm reading that from the King James. Now, I do not presume to speak for everyone on the King James only camp as to how they would teach this or whether or not they would even use this, but it is frequent. I'm just going to give you an overview of the basic idea uh, that they use to support, or they use these verses to support, and I'm going to recognize that there's going to be some nuance in how different people would explain it and different data that they would focus on. So they would start by saying, the words of the Lord, that's the Bible, And again, we're bringing in the assumption that specifically is the King James Bible. So when we read the words of the Lord are pure words, we're seeing the King James Bible is the pure words. And we know it's the King James Bible because it has been purified seven times, just like the verse says. All right? So seven, um, and this is where it is uh, pointed out um, that 
There are seven major English translations from the time of the first English translation until the time of the King James Bible. There were seven English Bibles, the seventh being the King James, and that coincides with this uh, purification process of the, of the silver purified seven times. Uh, there are also seven editions or revisions of the 1611 King James. So some will say it's the translations, some will say it's the revisions. Now, that, so, so because of that, then, there will never be another one because God promised to preserve his word from this generation forever. So God promised to preserve his word. His word is without error, that is pure. The King James Bible is the word of God. The King James Bible is the preserved word of God for the English-speaking people. So, verses 6 and 7, then, say that God promised to preserve his word from this generation forward, and he has done so in the King James Bible for uh, many other reasons, but primarily the fact that we can demonstrate a series of seven steps to arrive at the Bible we currently use. And because there must be a perfect and preserved uh, translation somewhere, and it's the King James. So it's a little bit circular, but I think that is that is a, a basic... Um, a basic overview. Again, there's nuance and differences of opinion and different data that others might might look to. I think it's fair to say that this passage can only be used as a proof text, uh, excuse me, as a proof text, if the presupposition of the King James Bible or any Bible translation is brought to it. You can't get it out of the text because it didn't even exist at the time the text was given. Discussions of this topic I've seen online and in person usually devolve quickly into ad hominem attacks. If you question someone about how Psalm 12, 6, and 7 can possibly be referring to the King James Bible, rather than dealing with the text itself, it will quickly devolve into personal attacks and questions about, well, where do you think the Word of God is then? Where is the perfect and pure Word of God? And if the King James Bible isn't the preserved Word of God, then where is it? And you just don't want a perfect and preserved Word because you don't like authority, because you don't love God, and I mean, it can get pretty nasty, um, but it generally um, diverts quickly away from a discussion of how Psalm 12, 6, and 7 even applies to that to a greater question of, or a different question of which Bible you believe is the Word of God. Now, these kind of arguments are distractions from the point at hand, and I'm not going to deal with them here, because whether or not there is a perfect English Bible, and whether or not it is the King James Bible, is not the question I'm trying to answer. I don't want to get drawn into that discussion here because I don't even believe that Psalm 12 is talking about that issue at all. But if you do think it is talking about that issue, then here are a couple of points I would like to raise. How do, you, how do your explanations of Psalm 12, 6 and 7 square with the subject matter of the entire psalm? Right? Verses 6 and 7 aren't in a vacuum. They're in a list of eight verses. The language, here's the, the second point I would like to point out, that the language of silver and purification is intended as an illustration of the purity of God's words or the words of the Lord, not a process by which the words themselves were purified. It's the principle of as equals. 
So the words of the Lord are pure words as, or in the same way that, silver that's tried seven times is in its purest form, okay? If the words themselves in Psalm 12, 6 were purified already as the psalmist says they are and were, how does that square with the seven translation revision theory? Now, if the answer is that the purification applies to English, as in each language, then can you show the same purification process for every Bible in each language? And what does that say for modern translation work going on in the going on on the mission field? Do those Bibles also need to go through a seven-time purification process before the pure Word of God is available? Because if again, if that's what you think Psalm twelve six and seven is talking about, again, I could be mistaken. I, I know this doesn't represent everybody's position, but are you saying that God's Word was not given in pure form? That seems problematic, but if you are, at what point were the words of God purified? Were they not purified until they were in the King James Bible? At what point did preservation kick in? And inspiration wasn't enough to make them pure? Now, aside from the tenuous parallels between purified seven times and the seven major English translations, which is not even strictly accurate... What other evidence do you have that this psalm has any bearing on a specific translation of the Bible? Those are just some points that I wanted to bring up. Now again, I think this whole discussion is spurious because I don't think the psalm has this in mind in the first place. It's like arguing against a question that wasn't asked. Because I don't believe Psalm 12 has anything to do with a Bible translation, the King James Bible, or any other specific translation of the Bible, because I don't think that's what the point is. I think it's fruitless to argue about that issue. Let me give you what I think is a reasonable explanation of this psalm. And again, you're free to disagree, and I could be wrong. Could you? Now, I'm going to use the King James Bible. Which is the Bible I use for reading, for memorization, for preaching? I'm going to use that to go through it, so you don't have to worry about me uh, pulling out a different version to tell you why the King James Bible doesn't say that. I'm going to use the King James Bible. It's the Bible I've had since I was a child. And we're just going to look at eight verses. There's only eight verses here, which is why it's so shocking that we should just pull two of them out and ignore the other six. So Psalm chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the psalm begins with a cry to the Lord for help. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. So there's a cry to the Lord for help because the godly man is ceasing, the faithful are failing from among the children of men. That is, they're getting harder and harder to find. I'm feeling more and more alone in this world amongst the children of men. In other words, the good people seem to be disappearing. Faithful men seem to be in short supply. Then, in verse number two, we read, they speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Excuse me. Who is they? The children of men. So there aren't a lot of faithful 
godly people among the children of men. Instead, what we see among the children of men is that they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. So we see that the words of men, instead of being good and faithful and godly, are full of vanity and lies. They speak empty words, they use flattering speech, uh, they use deception, they lie. Now in verse number three, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Verse 4, who have said with our tongue, we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. So in verse 3, the psalmist declares that God has promised to judge those whose words are full of deceit, pride, and arrogance. Those who say, our lips belong to us, we can say whatever we want to do. No one's going to tell us what to do and what to say. So, quick recap. Help, Lord. Good people seem to be disappearing. There aren't a lot of godly, faithful men left. Instead, I'm surrounded by people who use their words. They, don't, they, they, they tell lies. They use deceit. They flatter for the purpose of causing harm, for the purpose of destroying, for the purpose of, of persecution. I'm surrounded by people whose words are rotten and deceptive. And you promised, Lord, that you were going to judge the people. You've promised that you will judge the people who use words like that. You just can't trust anybody today anymore, Lord, and that's a shame. So then in verse number 5, God begins speaking. The psalmist was speaking. Now we have God's answer. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord, and I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. So in verse 5, God is speaking. He sees the oppression of the poor, he hears the sighing of the needy, and it stirs him to action, and he begins to make promises. He says, I will set him, the poor and needy, in safety from him that puffeth at him. So again, the psalm starts with a cry for help, and then halfway through the psalm, we have God promising to help. The word puffeth in the King James Bible is often used in conjunction with someone who intends injury, as well as someone who's telling lies. A good example of this would be Psalm 10. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. That sounds a lot like Psalm 12. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He saith in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud, and under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret place doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see 
Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. Now, the psalmist is going to, is going to continue on. There's still more, more verses yet, but Psalm chapter 10 is in the same line as Psalm chapter 12. It is the wicked using their words. They're, they're untrustworthy, they're lying, they're deceitful, they have hurt and harm in their intentions, and they intend to hurt the humble, to hurt the poor, and they don't think God is knows or is going to do anything about it. And that's the same kind of thing that's going on in Psalm chapter number 12. So the word puffeth there, when the psalmist said that um, uh, that him, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him, it has the same idea as Psalm chapter 10. Those who puff at others are those who intend to do them harm. Uh, now this isn't the only place in Proverbs 6.19, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. These are things that God hates, and the term speaketh lies is the same word translated puffeth. Proverbs 14.5, a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Utter lies is the same word for puffeth, okay? Now, it's not always used in that sense, but it is in the overwhelming majority of uses. You can look it up. Look up the word puffeth, okay? Look, look that up and in a, in a, in use the Strong's or use some kind of a Greek concordance where you can do a word search, and you'll find that that is the case. So when God says, I'm going to keep the poor, those who are being persecuted, I'm going to keep them safe from those who puff at them, he's saying, I'm going to keep them safe from those who would do them harm, those who would destroy them, those who would overwhelm them. Now we come to verses 6 and 7. So I'm going to recap again. We start off with a cry for help. Help, Lord, all the good people are going away. There are no godly, faithful people. Instead, I'm surrounded by people who use their tongue uh, for deceit and destruction and violence. And they have their sights set on me, Lord, and you've promised you're going to judge these kinds of people. And then God breaks in in verse number, in verse, uh, number five and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this. Because of their oppression, because of their persecution, I'm going to arise and help them. And I'm going to keep the poor and the, and the needy safe from those who are puffing at them. Again, the use of the tongue. Then we come to verses six and, and seven. Now, the words of the Lord are pure words. Why is that important? Because remember, what has the psalmist been complaining about? He's been complaining about people who, are using, who say one thing but mean another. People who use flattering words which sound promising, but they have a harmful intention in the, in the background of their mind. Right? So what they say is not pure. What they say is not true. In uh, comparison to that, or in distinction from that, the words of the Lord, they are pure words. There's nothing false in them. There's no lie in them. They're as pure as silver that is tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times until it's at its most pure, until it's at its most valuable. That is the words of the Lord. Not that the words of the Lord need purification, but he's using a, an example that they would understand Silver that has been purified seven times is, and again, it's a figure of speech to understand the most pure, at the highest level of purity. In contradistinction from the words of the wicked men, the ungodly and the unfaithful who use their words, who say one thing but mean another. God doesn't talk like that. He said, the words of the Lord, they're pure. 
The words of the Lord are pure words. And then as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, is intended as an illustration of the purity of the words, not a process by which the words are made pure. Okay? Then verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. All right, so we come to verses 6 and 7, and we have the declaration of the words of the Lord being pure. And it makes the most sense, in my opinion, in contrast with the deceptive, corrupt words of the men in the previous verse. Again, the language of silver is intended as description uh, of purity, not a description of process. Okay? Now, verse 7, which is the major verse in question in a lot of cases, you know, people want to argue, is the them the poor, or is the them the words? I actually don't really care. I have an opinion, and I'll give you my opinion, but it could be either one. And it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really change anything, and I'll tell you why. A cry for help because the godly and faithful men are vanishing from the earth. There's an abundance of men who use flattery and lies to destroy and injure. God says, I see that, and I'm coming to help. The psalmist said, you can trust that promise because God's words, unlike the men in the psalm, God's words are pure. They're not false. They're not flattery. They're trustworthy. But now, all of a sudden, the psalmist switches gears to teach about a future translation of the Bible that'll be coming along called the King James Bible, which would one day come on the scene as the preserved and pure Word of God. We go from speaking about a promise to speaking about a future Bible translation or the process by which the Word of God, as in the codices of the, of the Scriptures, are, are, are preserved. It's, if, if that sounds jarring to you, it should, because it's completely not in the line of thought of this psalm. To me, it seems like a real stretch. Now, there are two ways that this verse has been uh, understood even going back years and years and years, and I'm setting aside the, uh, the, the, the King James Bible for a moment. No, I'm, I'm going to use mine, but I mean, I'm setting aside that view. The two ways, first, is the promise of preserv- that the promise of preservation is aimed at the poor and needy who are trusting God. They're being oppressed, and God promises to keep them safe both now and in the future. So in that case, um, the them is the poor and needy who are being persecuted. All right. The second is a promise of preservation aimed at the words of the Lord. He is promising to preserve his words from the time of the psalmist onward. Now, I honestly don't care which of those two interpretations you choose. Many good men have taken both sides, and I can actually see both sides Neither interpretation requires or even hints at a single translation of the Bible, let alone the King James Bible. I think the idea of it being the poor in question makes the most sense when you recognize that we still have to do something with verse number 8. And so many times people just ignore verse number 8. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. This is why I think the poor being the subject of the preservation makes the most sense, because God is saying, whether it's, again, but it could also be the words, but I'll get to that in a moment. God promises to preserve and protect the poor, even while wicked men will continue to walk on every side. So let me read verses uh, 5 through 8 again. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety 
from him that puffeth at him. That's the wicked men, all right? The words of the Lord are pure, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. So in other words, we're going to continue to be surrounded by wicked men, but God is going to continue to either A, preserve his promises, keep his promise to protect the poor, or he's B, going to protect the poor. There's some overlap there. If it is the words, then it can still work if the words in question are the promises of protection and preservation from harm. God will keep his word. And you can take comfort in knowing that, even when wicked men are walking on every side. So there's no reason to take the phrase, the words of the Lord are pure words, and assume that that's talking about the entire canon of Scripture that needs to be purified through seven translations or seven revisions and was finally accomplished in the in 16 to 1700s in the King James Bible. If we do that, we lose the entirety of this psalm and the theme of it, the thrust of it, and the promise of it. The promise was when the psalmist said, Lord, I am, I am feeling uh, overwhelmed. I am feeling surrounded here. There aren't a lot of godly, faithful men left. Please, Lord, I'm surrounded by people who are using their words I can't even trust the people talking to me. They lie. They use flattery. They puff at me. And the Lord says, I see that. I've promised to both judge those who use their words that way and to protect those who are being misused by them. My promises are pure. The words of the Lord that I speak to you, they're pure. They're trustworthy. There is no deceit. There is no flattery. There is no lie. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to keep my promise and keep the poor. You're going to continue to be surrounded in the future. But my promises are both for now and for every generation. You can trust me. That's the only interpretation that seems, or excuse me, the only interpretation that seems to make a mess out of this is if you try to apply verses 6 and 7 to a specific English translation of the Bible. That doesn't even seem to be the idea of this psalm whatsoever. God's faithfulness and the purity of his words are set in contrast with the unfaithful wicked men and their lies and violence. So again, I'm not interested in arguing about a translation on the basis of this chapter because I don't think that is the aim of the chapter at all. And honestly, most of the men I've read on these two verses from the King James Bible camp never take the chapter in total. Now, if there's someone who has, and you can point me to their exposition of it, I'd, I would love that. I'd like to read it. And I know I could be wrong here. I don't think I am, but I am open to the possibility. Now, please know that this is not an attack on the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. I use it and have always used it. I memorized it as a child. I preach from it. I study it. But these two verses just don't work as a defense of the King James Bible as the pure and preserved Word of God. They just don't, at least in my opinion. The Bible has to mean what it means. My rejection of this argument is not a rejection of God's Word. It is a rejection of this argument. 
if your entire position hinges upon that argument, then I can see where you'd be upset with me. But that is not my intention. Go back and read Psalm chapter 12 with open eyes. Don't come to it thinking it's about the King James Bible. Because I promise you, it's not. It's about the purity and faithfulness of God in contrast to the corruption and wickedness of evil men. And God's promise, when he gives it, lasts. When God gives his word, he keeps it. Okay, so that wasn't as long as I was afraid it was going to be. We've only gone uh, just a few minutes over what we normally do. I would love to hear from you about this. Um, Again, don't send me emails asking, well, what do you believe about the King James Bible, and where is the pure and perfect and preserved Word of God? Because again, I don't want to have that argument because that is not the point of this psalm to begin with, and that argument, what I would like to talk about is Psalm chapter 12, and any exposition of verses 6 and 7 must include the ecosystem in which they are found, and that is verses 1 through 8. And I think that the, the explanation that gives the greatest explanatory power to verses 6 and 7 is some version of what I've just said. Hopefully it'll help you to think about it. Hopefully it will challenge your thinking on it. And I would love to hear your thoughts. Please be kind. Please be Christ-like in your responses. We are brothers after all. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to being back with you again for another episode of this Poor Pastors podcast the very next time I'm able. Hopefully that'll be Monday. Have a great week, everybody.